Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those with me to Acts chapter 5, the book of Acts chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 42 today. If you brought your own Bible, great. If you didn't, there's a hardback black one in a seat back, a seat pocket near you. And you'll be looking for page 859, 859 in the hardback black one for Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. I'd like to begin this morning, as I often do, by asking, uh, at least my sermon portion, by asking a question, maybe a few of them. I'd like to ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the present king of this world? Do you really believe that Jesus is the king, the sovereign, the ruler of this present world as it is? If so, how do we see Christ's rule on display in this present world? Where can you point to and say, look, there is where we see evidence of Christ reigning him in charge. If you believe that Jesus is the king of this present world, then why does it often look so much like this world is opposed to Christ, to his word, to his people, to biblical, true Christianity? Why does the New Testament and why do Christians throughout history speak as though Christians are living as pilgrims or strangers or aliens in this world if Jesus is king now. Well, in the early 400s AD, there was a a pastor, theologian, and philosopher by the name of Augustine. He lived in North Africa, and he wrote a huge book, uh, both in size and influence, called The City of God. He's still today one of the most influential Christians who's ever lived. Um, Augustine, in his book called The City of God, he basically described two different cities. One was the city of God and the other was the city of man. The city or kingdom of God, as Augustine argued, is present in this world, but it is not yet fully displayed. So it's here, but not yet fully visible, fully displayed in this world. He said, he argued that it is somewhat visible, and many other Christians have picked up the same idea, uh, that the kingdom of God is somewhat visible in this world in the lives of Christians. So where Christians seek to live underneath the kingly and kindly rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where you can see the kingdom of God on display in this world, or the city of God, in Augustine's words. The city of God, as Augustine argued, is marked off by godly fear, by Holiness and by love for God and love for others. These are characteristics of the city of God in this world. The other city, as I said, was the city of man that he described. Man's city or kingdom is also present in this world now, but it is coming to an end. In fact, the city of man, it appears to be quite strong in the world as it is. But as Augustine argued, the strength of the city of man is really an illusion. It is not real. Unlike the city of God, the citizens of man's city or man's kingdom, they have no fear of God. They are marked by sin and unholiness, and they have no real love for God or love for others. Now, in the present world, as we experience it, the contrast between the city of man and the city of God is not always so easy and obvious. It's not so clear. But in our passage this morning, I think what we'll see is sort of an example of of the the picturesque city of God on display and the city of man in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. We'll see how model citizens of each of these cities or each of these kingdoms, uh, how they act, how they speak, what kind of things they say, what kind of things they value. We'll see how the city of God and the city of man coexist in the world as it is, and even how they overlap a bit. And we'll see how there is always an inevitable conflict between the two that arises. The unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts, uh, Luke basically is taking us, the reader, along sort of a plot line. And we arrive this morning in Acts chapter 5 at yet another development in the story, which sketches out 
the characters and this rising conflict, which just continues all the way throughout the book of Acts. So you'll see that the that the apostles, when they proclaim the gospel, when when they're recorded as saying things to others around, they essentially speak like this. They speak as though that God's kingdom has been inaugurated among the inhabitants of a post Genesis three world. They speak as though Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected and ascended Messiah is right now king over all kings. They speak as though because of Christ's saving life and his sacrificial death, all who are now presently citizens of the city of man or the kingdom of man may swear allegiance to a new right king, the true and and rightful king of of all of all things, uh, the king of the city of God, the king of the kingdom of God. And by doing so, they can receive complete forgiveness of sins and they can be welcomed into a new citizenship. The way the apostles preach the gospel throughout the book of Acts. But the city of man in the book of Acts and all throughout history is not willing to give up its rebellion. Its citizens want to cling to this rebellion that they exhibit. Especially those with power and authority. This is certainly on display in our passage. Sometimes the citizens of the city or kingdom of man, sometimes they act with overt hostility, sometimes with condescending indifference. But it's clear that the people who are citizens of the city of man are constantly at war with the kingdom or city of God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached the gospel and thousands responded with repentance and belief or repentance and faith. They gave up their citizenship in the city of man. And by baptism, they became visible members of the city of God in the world. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were preaching the gospel again. But this time, we're not told how the the crowd responded because before they ended, they were arrested by those who were in charge. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were imprisoned. And then they were threatened. And then they were turned loose. And they gathered the whole church there in Jerusalem together. And they prayed that God would help them despite the opposition from the city of man, to keep on boldly speaking the word of God, even though they had been warned and even though they'd been threatened not to do so. Then in the early portion of Acts chapter 5, which we studied not long ago, we learned that God's people in this world are not only to be those who speak the word of God with boldness, but they are also to live with godly fear. They were and are to live according to what Word God has revealed, which is both for salvation and for living, for doctrine and for practice. Such reverent and word-centered living was and is, in fact, what marks off citizens of the city of God from citizens of the city of man. And that brings us now to our passage this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. I'll read the entire bit out loud, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I one of the ways that we show respect or reverence for God's word is we stand while we read this, this primary passage. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all, gathered, were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest joined them, there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him They called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice and when they had called, the, called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point that I'd like to draw out of this passage in its context, not only in the book of Acts, but in the overarching story of the Bible, I'd like to draw out what I think is a main, a main point that Luke would seek to make to its reader. And that is that God calls his people to live as faithful citizens in an otherworldly kingdom, even as they live among the hostile citizens of the kingdom of this present world. God commands his people to be faithful citizens of an otherworldly kingdom, even as we live in this present world, which has hostile citizens of another kingdom. For those who'd like to take notes, there'll be four points today. One, the kingdom of God, looking at that exemplified in our passage and how we might draw uh, some indication from that. Number two, the kingdom of man. Number three, the inevitable conflict. And then number four, a call to faithfulness. So let's begin by looking at the kingdom of God. There are a few ways the kingdom of God is on display in our passage, and I want us to look at those for just a moment. The first way that the kingdom of God is on display in our passage is the characteristic of physical healing and spiritual healing. You see, first in verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done by, uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles. This was happening so much so that in verse 15, we're told that people began to put their, their sick loved ones out in the streets so that in case Peter walked by, his shadow might fall on them and maybe they would receive healing. Peter being, in this passage, the representative of uh, the kingdom of God in this world. In verse 16, uh, people from around Jerusalem, so not only in Jerusalem, but even from towns around, uh, they hear about what's going on there. There's this, there's this, this new group of folks who are proclaiming a new king and in this king's name, they are healing people of their afflictions. And so people brought their sick and afflicted loved ones. And verse 16 tells us they were all healed. 
This was a sign, a representation, a, a visible demonstration that the kingdom of God is present in this world. It has been inaugurated. Here we see the apostles doing the very same thing that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out evil spirits. And he did this in order to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is at hand, is near, is among you, as Jesus said it. So the the point of these physical healings is not that God intends for every person to be healed, as some health and wealth and prosperity preachers might tell us today. But rather the point that we read, both in the Gospels and the book of Acts, of this healing is that the kingdom of God includes physical and spiritual healing. And the kingdom of God is breaking into this present world as it is. And so the apostles then, as commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be his ambassadors and to not only speak the word of God in Christ's name, but also to do the works that Christ did, they then are showing this very same thing is happening right now in the book of Acts as the kingdom of God is established in its inauguration in this present world as it is. So the message of Acts is the same message as that of the Gospels. And that is that the kingdom of God is here. And we can know that because the effects of the curse are being rolled back. What's the curse that we learn about way back there in Genesis 3? When sin comes into creation, God cursed creation with ultimate death. But not just the termination of of mortal life, but rather dying you shall die is the curse that God gives to Adam. And indeed, there there are several curses that are played out in Genesis 3 that God articulates. These are going to be the effects of the fall, the fall into sin. Among them is the the deterioration of the human body. And so then when, when someone is raised back from physical death or someone's physical body is healed and made new, it, it is telling everybody else around, look, this is the, the reversing of the curse of Genesis 3. And this is the point. God's kingdom is inaugurated. The kingdom of God has been prophesied of old. He is at work in this present world as it is. That's one of the features of the kingdom of God we see on display in our passage. Another feature of the kingdom of God in our passage is, you can see it in verses 30 and 31. And that is that God's king is both vindicated and exalted. So God's anointed, set aside, uh, uh, established king of his kingdom in this world, this God-man that's been prophesied of old, he has been vindicated and he has been exalted. This is the way that Peter puts it in verses 30 and 31 of our passage. Proclaiming this word to the Jewish council, uh, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, raised him back from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. There's more to this language than we have time to get into this morning, but uh, one who's hanged on a tree is one who is cursed underneath Jewish law. So the idea that he's presenting here is that Jesus was, by your declaration, was cursed. Not you necessarily on this side of the auditorium, but you understand. The Jewish leaders there, by your declaration, Jesus was cursed. But God has made a different declaration about who this Jesus is by raising him from the dead. That he is not underneath God's curse, but rather he is the vindicated Savior. In addition to that, Peter goes on to say that God exalted him. That is, exalted Christ at his right hand, at the Father's right hand, as leader and savior. So Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection. He died as one who was counted as the guiltiest sinner ever, but when he's raised back from death, never to die again, he's vindicated saying, "No, it wasn't him. It wasn't his his sins for for which he died. Rather, it was the sins of those he was standing in place of." Right? It was it was the people for whom he came to die that he was counted as guilty, but it wasn't him who was guilty. He, in fact, is perfect, righteous in every way, and he's been raised from the dead because death has no claim on him. He is vindicated. He's also exalted. He sits now at the right hand of the Father, and he is proclaimed to be leader, archegos, the the originator, the founder, the preeminent ruler. This is something that Jesus is now, according to the apostles, and Savior. 
And we see that Peter says that both he and the apostles and the Holy Spirit are witnesses to these facts. See it there in verse 32. Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. So the very earliest Christians, they bore witness to what they had seen and heard for themselves. And the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, bore witness that these things are true. Both in the proclamation of the word, which is God's own word, but even in the very reality that God's spirit is now dwelling among his people. This is a testimony. This is a bearing witness to the fact that God's Messiah had come. Because now the dwelling place of God is beginning to be with man. God himself is indwelling his people in the world by his Holy Spirit. And these things testify that Jesus is vindicated and exalted. A third feature of the kingdom of God in this present world is that God's kingdom is otherworldly. I get this by contrasting the way that all of the, uh, those with, with worldly power in this passage are setting up shop against the kingdom of God. So uh, this, is, this reminds me of when uh, Jesus is speaking to Pilate there in his trial before he's crucified. And Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to release if I want to? Jesus' response to Pilate is, you only have the authority that's been given to you. Jesus reminds Pilate that you are an underling. You are a delegated servant, sir. You do not have authority over me. There is one who has ultimate and supreme authority, and it is God. This kind of is the same sort of idea that I see presented to us in this passage, where there are worldly powers who are seeking to flex their muscles against God's kingdom, and, and then we recognize that the kingdom of God is not of this world. It is of another world in Jesus's own words. So we see then that the high priest in verse 21, the religious council in verse 21, all of the Senate or the elders in verse 21, and even the officers and their captain, verses 22, 24, and 26, all of these are set up in opposition to God's kingdom in this world. Gamaliel even says as much, which we'll get a little bit more to Gamaliel in just a bit, but in verses 38 and 39, when he makes this case for not doing anything with the apostles at this, at this moment, he, he warns the Jewish council. He says, you know, if you, if you go against these guys, then you might find yourself opposing God. And I think in this moment, Gamaliel, Gamaliel speaks of, of more than he could possibly have known himself. But as I said, we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. In addition to what we find here in this passage, I said this passage gives us sort of an exemplary look at, at uh, uh, you know, model citizens of each of the kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the apostles and the Christians being exemplary citizens of the kingdom of God and the worldly powers and authorities being exemplary citizens of the kingdom of man. Well, this plays out not only in our passage, but on throughout church history, Christian history. Uh, not long after Christianity began, it spread throughout the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire recognized that there being a, a chief authority that superseded any Roman emperor, the God-man Jesus Christ being Lord above all, that that was subversive to Caesar's authority. And so Rome persecuted Christians. We see this even playing out in the book of Acts itself. The very end of the book of Acts, uh, the, the scene closes with the apostle Paul in prison. He has some freedom to teach and preach. And in this way, the gospel goes to all the nations, all the world by way of Rome. But nevertheless, the chief missionary witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in the known world at that time is imprisoned under Roman authority. During the first and second centuries, faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus were so often um, put to death, persecuted in some way, and many of them put to death, that the word that means witness in Greek became the same word that we now use for dying for standing up for a cause. So the word martyr comes from the Greek word that just means witness. It didn't mean dying for a cause. But so many of the witnesses to the Lord Jesus ended up dying for the cause of Christ that the word that means witness became the word that means dying. This then is the story of Christianity throughout history. Now, certainly there are times in history, many times in history, where those who claim the name of Christ are sitting in the very seats of, of worldly power. 
But by and large, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ has often been at odds with the worldly powers and rulers. And I would like to say, even when those worldly authorities have taken or claimed the name of Christianity or the name of Christ for themselves. Point number two, the kingdom of man. So we've looked at the kingdom of God on display in our passage, considered it a little bit playing out throughout history. Let's look at the kingdom of man on display. So too, the kingdom of man has some attributes or characteristics presented to us in our passage this morning. The first one I want to point out is this furious self-protection. In verses 17 and 18, when the high priest and all who were with him, when they were filled with jealousy over the number of people who were being attracted to the message of the apostles, well, they responded by having them arrested and put in prison. They, they wouldn't stand for this. Still further, in verse 19, when the apostles were, were freed and then arrested, in verse 28, for a second time uh, throughout that passage, in verse 28, the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders there, they, they were saying that, look, you guys are seeking to put blame on us for the crucifying of the, the Lord's Messiah. Right? You're, you're trying to put blame on us for this whole thing not going so well. They're trying to protect their own reputation, their own seat of authority, their own place of power. And finally, when Peter and the apostles laid blame on them yet again in verse 30, and they were even bearing witness to the fact that Jesus, Jesus is God's designated leader or savior, then the whole Jerusalem council was enraged, verse 33, and they wanted to kill them. So in exemplary fashion here, the citizens of the kingdom or the city of man are furiously self-protective. Any assault on their established rule is something that they protect against. Another feature, though, is their pragmatic shrewdness. Pragmatic in the sense of doing what works and shrewdness of being clever, being savvy. I think that we see Gamaliel as an example of this in our passage. So think about it in, in verses uh, uh, 33 and 34. Uh, they, Gamaliel makes an argument against uh, killing the apostles right away. But this was in response to Gamaliel's coming up with the solution is in response to the rage that was being experienced on the part of the Jer- Jerusalem council. Uh, they were being blamed uh, for crucifying the Lord's Messiah. Hey, you guys have done the worst possible thing ever. And they were furious and wanted to put down this voice that was saying just how bad they had been. Gamaliel, though, is one who is a teacher of the law, we're told. He's held in honor by all the people, and he steps up with a solution to the problem. But notice how Gamaliel's solution to this problem doesn't address in the least the truth claims that are being made by the apostles. Gamaliel doesn't say anything about the substance of their message. He merely points to a couple of other revolutionaries and says, you know, these other guys it didn't really work out for. If you just let this one alone, it'll probably fizzle out as well. This then shows great political savvy, I think, on Gamaliel's part. We also see this political savvy, this, this, this pragmatic shrewdness. In that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they acted on as much as they could get away with in light of the people being really excited about the apostles and really excited about Gamaliel. So the Jewish leaders, uh, they weren't weren't lovingly letting the apostles and disciples go. They weren't super excited about this whole thing. As a matter of fact, if they could have had their way, they would have murdered them on the spot. But rather, because of the situation being what it was, they bide their time and they let them go. There's a pragmatic shrewdness to what we see on display here. A third characteristic is that the city of man, the kingdom of man, is visibly formidable. It's visibly formidable. It looks very strong. So in verses 17 and 18, the high priests and the leaders who were with them, with him, they had the ability, they had the power to arrest the apostles for doing what? For preaching a message they didn't like. They could arrest them. And they could put them in public prison. And even after the apostles had been miraculously freed. They still had the ability to go and gather them up. And set them before the Jewish council there. In order for them to be questioned. 
Finally, when the apostles were released, they were not without any penalty at all. They were still beaten for their troubles. So the worldly leadership in this whole display here, to anybody who's watching these, in, these events unfold, the worldly leaders at this time, they seem to be the ones who hold all the strings of power. They have the ability to arrest. They have the ability to imprison. They have the ability to put people in front of a, a, a board of inquiry. They have the ability to beat folks on their way out of jail if they can't really keep them there on these trumped up charges. The worldly powers, the worldly kingdom, the kingdom of man is visibly formidable. But a fourth characteristic that I want to be quick to point out is this. That the kingdom of man, the city of man, is both presently and ultimately impotent. It is both presently and ultimately impotent. Now, this might seem to conflict with what I've just now told you. It's, it seems it's visibly formidable, right? The city of man is visibly formidable. It seems like it's very powerful, but it is presently right now, not only ultimately, that's true as well, but even right now, it is actually impotent. Let me explain what I mean. If we see in verse 19, we see that when the apostles were imprisoned for preaching the gospel, They were imprisoned by these religious leaders in Jerusalem, but an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And the angel of the Lord brought them out so that they would keep right on doing everything they were arrested for. In fact, he even told them to do it, this angel. Next, as soon as the apostles left the presence of the council in verses 41 and 42, they went right back to the temple And went house to house teaching that the Christ is Jesus. And Luke tells us that the response to this action in chapter 6 verse 1. Is that during these days the disciples, that is the Christians, were increasing in number. So there are a few observations that I think we can make. At least three, maybe many others. But three I want to make really quick to to what what I've just now mentioned to you. The first one is. That God decides who and how much jail time anybody's going to do for the name of Christ. When God wanted to release the apostles from prison, his angel released them. There was nothing that worldly powers could do to maintain their hold on them. God is the one who ultimately decides who and how much jail time anyone does for the name of Christ in this world. So though the world seems to be the, the worldly powers, the, the city of man seems to be those who the ones who are making the decision about who goes to jail and who doesn't, who suffers persecution and who doesn't. We see in this passage that God ultimately is the one who decides. The second observation I want to make is that God's plans to build his kingdom cannot be thwarted. Even persecution uh, that's seeking to put down the advance of the message of the apostles and the conversion of others who are hearing this message, the very act of persecuting them only kindles their fire to preach the gospel more. And it seems that the response to the crowds who heard this good news was only motivated further to convert. That the persecution of the gospel only leads in our passage here this morning to the further expansion of the gospel and further growth of the kingdom of God. So God builds his kingdom despite any of the best efforts of the city of man. A third observation is that God will reveal all things as they truly are in his good time. But for the present moment, the task is the proclaiming of the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the task is not to build a kingdom in this present world. God will do that. The task that the people of the city of God have, the task that citizens of God's kingdom have, is to continue to preach and to teach, to proclaim the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Nevertheless, the self-protective, shrewd, and formidable kingdom of this world continues to make war against Christ and his people. So what of that? Where do we see this inevitable conflict arise again and again? Well, this leads us to point number three, the inevitable conflict. There, there are inevitable conflicts in this world between the city of God and the city of man. 
But I want to tell you just to start off with point number three, which is going to be a little bit of a longer one. I'm trying to build this out for us a little bit. So bear with me. The inevitable conflict that we see arising in any given moment between the citizens of the city of God and the citizens of the city of man is only a symptom of the greater and more central conflict that truly is at hand. The greater and more central conflict is the very nature of who is in charge. Think about it. What was the message that enraged the worldly religious leaders? Well, in verse 30, it was the message that God had raised forevermore the one whom they had crucified, killed by hanging him on a tree. That Jesus that you put down is the very one that God has raised. And that enraged them. It was the message that God has exalted, verse 31, this Jesus at the right at his right hand. And that this Jesus is the only and the true leader and savior of Old Testament Israel as well as everybody else in the world. Jesus is the savior. The very one that you thought was so scandalous. The very one that you, that you opposed with every bit of your worldly authority and power. That's the very one that is the singular leader and savior. That was the message that enraged them. Enraged them. In verse 32. It was the message that the apostles were witnesses to these things and also that the Holy Spirit himself bore witness since God had now given his spirit to those who obey him. The implication is you don't have the Holy Spirit, you religious leaders, because you are not obeying him. If you were obeying God, you would have the Holy Spirit just as we do. That's the message that enraged. Ending on the very seat of authority that was not just civil authority, but religious authority. These are the religious leaders, not the apostles. So where do the apostles get off telling them who's religiously and civilly in charge of this whole thing? The conflict arose because of a deep-seated conflict about who is actually in charge. And this message, the same one that I've been highlighting, that, the, that was the apostles' message in our passage is a message that enrages the heart of all worldly, that is all unregenerate, all spiritually dead people in this world. It's a message that naturally us because we are naturally sinful. The message of the gospel is a message about human failure and inability, not of human accomplishment. When you and I are born, we are born already condemned by association and by representation with our first parents. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the Bible teaches us that in Adam, all, that we are all counted as sinners. Every day that we've lived in our whole lives, we have lived in rebellion against the God who rules and reigns over this universe. We've not done what we ought to do. We've done that which we should not do. And when we become aware of God's good and right, it does not rescue us from the depths of our sinful pit, but rather it shines a floodlight. On just how we are down there. When God's law first first shows up. So then the gospel is not first and foremost. A message of good news about you or me. It's a message of good news about God. Which is fantastic news for me and you. But it's first and foremost about God. So in Christ God has done what his law could not do. Not because the law was bad. Not because the law was weak. But because we're weak. And because we're bad. We are sinful, and therefore, when God's law shows up and says, look, if you'll just do this, you will live. We don't do this, and so we don't live. We deserve death. So then, what did God do? Well, he sent his only son in the form of a man to fulfill every requirement of his law. To live perfectly underneath God's requirements. To live a morally upright life. To actually be righteous. And then to die underneath the penalty that we deserve for being unrighteous so that sinners like me and you could go free. This is the good news of the gospel, is that God's law has been satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is good news about God showing us his own character, that he is both just and merciful, that he is righteous and 
and graciously forgiving, even to the worst of sinners. And this then is good news for us. But finally, the good news of the gospel speaks to an ultimate destination that is bad news for worldly powers. For the establishment of worldly authority, for the establishment of the city of man, the gospel is bad ultimate news. Because the gospel tells us, it reminds us that this worldly order as it is, is going to be overturned. And that one day, all of our sin, all of our wickedness will be laid bare. And God will revisit on our own heads everything we've ever done and all of the punishment that we've earned. Unless Christ has already endured such things for us. So to those who are citizens of the city of man, the gospel is incredibly bad news unless we're ready and willing to reject our citizenship in the city of man and swear allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, uh, this is why sometimes when we tell our loved ones the gospel, they're not super excited with us. This is why sometimes we share the gospel with others. They don't respond well. This is why they sometimes even get angry. Now, this is not an excuse to be a jerk. We should not be um, arrogant Christians. This is an oxymoron to, to speak of an arrogant Christian. To be a Christian is to recognize that we are not what we ought to be, that we, we should be humbled at the very beginning of our Christian walk, recognizing that we can't solve our own problems. We can't be our own savior. We can't follow the rules that God has given us to follow. We need a savior. So too, in our interactions with others, who are not yet loving and following the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be humble in our presentation of the gospel. But we should remember that the presentation of the gospel that we give is not always going to produce a wonderful response. It's not always going to make people really happy with you. As a matter of fact, calling people to relinquish their authority, their rights, their, their seeming independence in the city of man for submission to the right and good king of the city of God, that's quite offensive. To many of those, especially who are not believing. We should also remember that in our sharing of the gospel, we are not the ones who are responsible for converting anyone. We are responsible to be faithful preachers and teachers of the gospel. We simply tell the gospel to others, aiming to persuade them, as Max Stiles' evangelism book says. But we, at the end, we let God be the one who does the converting, because after all, he's the only one who can do it. Uh, another point here on this inevitable conflict, we want to recognize that conflict is not always easy to see. And again, as I mentioned before, Gamaliel, I think, is an example of this. He, he's one who's sort of indifferent to the presentation that the apostles are giving. So think about it. The, the, the apostles are claiming that Israel needed repentance and forgiveness, that Israel is not the seat of religious wonder, but that Israel is the seat of, of sin and wickedness. Peter also is claiming that God's Holy Spirit came to only those who obey. And therefore, the implication is that they weren't obeying. Peter and John were in the very temple that is, this, is the uh, symbol of the religion of, of Judaism during that time. And they are proclaiming the message that the Christ is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who actually does away with, or more, or more uh, rightly, fulfills all that this temple pointed towards. And therefore, is is superseding this very temple that they're standing in. Now, all of this was a direct assault on the way of life of those Jewish leaders. But Gamaliel doesn't say anything about those things. It's a direct affront on everything the Jewish council stands for. And Gamaliel sidesteps the whole thing and says, let's just think pragmatically about the situation. This then is, a, it is, is an example of indifference. The message is Jesus is the king of the universe. And Gamaliel says, let's just see how this plays out. A lot of our friends and our family members, they may react in the same sort of way. They may claim even to believe that Jesus is the savior, that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet they live as though anything else in this world, including themselves, is truly king. They may live as though money or government or leisure or sports or anything else is their allegiance and not Jesus. Sometimes, too, the conflict is not seen because sometimes in our world, 
though this is not exemplified in our passage, sometimes it plays out like this. Non-Christians and Christians have the same goals in mind. Sometimes non-Christians want the same things that Christians do. Sometimes non-Christians want safer communities or less poverty or healthy children or consistent laws or even basic personal freedom or some kind of standard of morality. But when our, in, when our interests intersect, Christians and non-Christians, when our interests intersect and there doesn't seem to be any conflict at all, we ought not mistake that as unity, as peace. It's merely temporary and it's not real. So just because there is some conflict that is inevitable, inevitable between the city of God and the city of man, the third thing I want to say about this inevitable conflict is that not all conflict is godly. Not all conflict is godly. So just because we're hot and bothered about something that's going on in the world around us, just because we're upset about something that somebody else is doing, doesn't mean that we automatically are representatives of the city of God and they automatically are representatives of the city of man. Therefore, what I say goes and what they say is bad. That is not the case. Think about the way these two revolutionaries are mentioned right here in our passage. In verse 36 and 37, Theodos and Judas the Galilean, each of these Gamaliel points to and says, hey, these guys, they gathered some people up for them in opposition seemingly to the Jewish leadership of that day. So we learn here that people don't have to be Christians. They don't have to be God-fears. They don't have to be those who are actually uh, on God's side or citizens of the city of God in this world to share the same kind of disdain that we might have for some particular government policy or law or practice. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are Christians, even though they might share some of our same convictions. And it also reminds us that not all of our convictions are necessarily those things that we should impose on other people. We should understand that what we, what we see as convictions in this life, uh, what we see as, as universal convictions, should have clear mandates from Scripture. That it ought to arise out of God's own commands, God's own instructions. All right, so if there's an inevitable conflict between the city of God and the city of man in the world, how then should we live? What are Christians to do? What, what, what should we... Should we take up arms? Should we, should we uh, go to war and try to establish God's kingdom in this world? Should we seek to do a bunch of good, uh, to meet the needs of others, to help where we can, in order to make the rest of the world look more like the city of God? Really, what is the charge or the mission of Christians in the world? Well, this brings me finally to point number four. A call to faithfulness. A call to faithfulness. I see three examples of what faithfulness looks like in our passage. There are many others that we might consider. I want to just name these three this morning. The first one is the apostles, they aim to obey God rather than men. So faithfulness in this world may look like obeying God rather than men. In verse 28, the high priest reminds Peter and John that they were strictly charged not to teach in this name. But Peter says, we can't obey you. We have to obey God. This reminds us that anyone who has any worldly authority, whether it be a spouse, a boss, a, a politician, a, a, an officer of the law, that authority is only delegated from God. And if there ever is anyone who commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands, we as Christians, as those who swear allegiance to King Jesus, are duty-bound to disobey others and to obey God. Now, once again, this does not mean that we should, based on whatever our particular preference is for the moment, say that this is what God would have me do and therefore disobey those with authority over us. Christians should be those who who are exemplary citizens of any nation of the world. We should be those who are happy. They stay in their lane. When they give us authority, when, when they express their authority over us in ways that are either in keeping or that God doesn't explicitly speak against. God's word commands us to do something other than what someone else commands us or for, forbids us to do. We must obey God and we must be prepared. To face the consequences. This is something I think Christians ought to think a lot more about. 
especially in the Western world in our current uh, climate. A second example of what faithfulness might look like in our passage is related to the first, and that is that we should rejoice in suffering for Christ's name. Look at verse 41. The apostles, when they were released from Jewish council there, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Christ. They were beaten and their response wasn't, I have my rights. We're going to take this to court. We're going to figure out some way to make you guys pay. That wasn't their immediate response. Rather, they rejoiced that they were counted so closely associated with the Lord Jesus Christ that they would be persecuted in the same way that Christ was persecuted. Jesus had warned his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But all these things, Jesus said, they will do to you on account of my name. And Timothy, Second Timothy, Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that Christ has been our example to follow in this very way. Now, again, to give just a quick caveat, that doesn't mean that Christians should just lay down and die when there's persecution or when there's opposition. But it does mean that we should be far more concerned about faithfulness to Christ than we are about our temporary comforts. Finally, the third uh, way that that faithfulness uh, looks in our passage here today is that the apostles kept on teaching and preaching, particularly the gospel, that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. This, first of all, reminds us what the gospel actually is. The Christ is Jesus. It's a message about Jesus doing what God has said he would do. That he is the Christ, the anointed one, the prophesied Messiah who would save and rule, who would wash sins clean and bring citizens into a new kingdom. That's what the gospel is. It also reminds us of what should should be our highest priority. Believing and living as God-fearing Christians. Why were the apostles released by this angel of the Lord from their prison? Why were they rejoicing and what did they do after? Was it so that they could chase the American dream? Was it so that they could retire in luxury? Was it so they could achieve a great success in their career? Was it so they could do what they loved? No. It was so that they would continue to preach and to teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not to say that all those things are necessarily bad. But when we put anything above teaching and preaching the gospel, living as faithful Christians, then that thing then is what we're living for. Living as a Christian is something we're doing kind of on the side. Whereas what we see in the New Testament is that Christians were living for Christ as their primary goal in life. And everything everything else they did in life was on the side. May God help us to get our priorities back in line as well. And live as faithful Christians, citizens of an otherworldly kingdom, even as we're in the midst of hostility when we live among the citizens of this world.